Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Yeager. This is the MTOM Show podcast, a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market TV show. You know, there's never a shortage when it comes to the livestock industry. And the last couple of years, if you go back to 2020, that's not even where the story started. There was a trend developing in 2019 that we are still dealing with. A recent report by USDA laid out how animals are moving and disappearing. Not necessarily one of those mysterious conspiracy things, but they're headed to the market and we've been eating them. There's been a strong demand for beef. And what does that mean long-term? What are the factors that are playing into you going to the grocery store and having a selection of fresh food? We're going to talk about that and the economics of how that got there, but also the struggles that uh, those in the middle that do the feeding uh, for input costs. And we're also going to discuss those decisions uh, at uh, the feedlot or the the cow-calf level about turning that bull out and seeing what's happening. Daryl Peel, who better than Oklahoma State University Extension uh, Agribusiness and Agroeconomy discussion? That's what we're going to have today with Daryl. Always a good chat, always a good time, and uh, very insightful here as we get into the dynamics, especially, well, you know me, I can't escape the weather, and that's going to be a big part of today's discussion. So here we go. We're going to school, Ag Economics with Daryl Peel. All right, Daryl, we were just, before we started rolling, I was asking you about the weather. What is it with Oklahoma and ice that strikes fear in everyone? <laughs> you know, this state, I grew up in Montana, and I, and I saw, you know, dealing with snow and winter weather was not a big deal. But honestly, the ice that tends to happen down here is much worse than anything you could have up north. Uh, it's so much more debilitating. Plus, we don't get a lot of winter weather, so we're really not equipped to handle it. I think it's a combination of those two things, but but you know you really can't do anything when you lay down that glare ice. Yeah, um, it just brings everything to a halt, and normally it doesn't stay cold for very long. So that's the difference between Oklahoma and Montana from a cattle perspective. Is uh, you know up there you learn how to deal with it. You got to work in it. You feed in it. You got to be out in it. Down here, you typically just hunker down and wait it out, and 24, 36 hours, it's gone most of the time. But when it doesn't do that, then it's really a problem for our guys. And so this has been a challenge. Those animals have a little thicker coats up in Montana than they do in Oklahoma. Yeah, they do. They get used to it. And so that's that can also really be an issue, especially if we get early season storms and our cattle are not uh, haired up yet. And and yeah. so they can, really, they can really suffer a lot in this. Uh, you mentioned Montana is your home. How did you end? What did you grow up in doing? Uh, was it always been cattle or were you one of those guys that you had different visions as a kid? No, you know, and I should say, uh, I, you know, I actually started out life in West Texas, but my dad wanted out of row crop farming. He wanted to raise some cattle. So, uh, when I was a little type, we moved to Western Montana and he bought a little place and, uh, we raised cattle and hay basically. And, uh, and and he worked off the farm some too, and so that's what I grew up. I was always around cattle my my whole life, and and I've been interested in it. So uh, that's been my whole my whole life as well as my whole professional career uh, has been has been the cattle. I've been in Oklahoma now thirty five years almost thirty four I guess. Uh, so I've been here a long time, but it's always been about cattle. Uh, do you think uh, the rest of the country has caught up to the fact that Oklahoma does? is more of a cattle state than Texas. Come on, let's throw some shade at Texas right here. 
<laughs> well, uh, it, it is a big cattle state. And, you know, uh, in, in some ways, I have made the argument in the past that proportional to our size, um, the cattle industry is very important here. The stocker cattle part of that industry is particularly important. You know, one of the things I've done in my career is work a lot with the stocker industry. And it's been unique because when I left Montana, I didn't know what the stocker industry was. And I think there's still some challenge. You know, most cattle up north are born in the spring. They leave in the fall and they go somewhere. But we don't necessarily know where always. And, and uh, you know, you just don't do a lot of that because there's just too much winter. And so, uh, so I had to learn about the stocker industry when I first moved back to the Southern Plains. And uh, and it's been a lot of fun really learning the role of that and the importance of that. And then, of course, here in the Southern Plains, most years we have wheat pasture in the wintertime. That's a fairly unique thing. And it actually plays a pretty important role nationwide in cattle markets because we provide a home for a lot of cattle from the southeast or from maybe from up north uh, at that time of the year when there isn't a lot of things to graze. Well, and I had heard uh, last uh, late last summer uh, that there was concern that Oklahoma was going to be a little different place uh, for cattle because of the dry conditions. And maybe not as many uh, cattle were going to, maybe some cattle were coming from Texas, but there were going to be some offloading farther east where there was rain. Did that end up happening? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, we just got the USDA semi-annual cattle inventory numbers and, uh, and and the impact of the drought is very evident in there uh, in terms of what we expected, not only on a nationwide basis, but regionally. Oklahoma, actually, if you look at the all cattle and calves inventory, Oklahoma had the biggest reduction year over year of any state. Um, so we lost uh, something like 600,000 head of cattle last year in total, which was, I think, twice what Texas lost. And so um, and so yeah, the impacts here in Oklahoma have been uh, very, very, uh, you know, very severe and, and, and continue to be, frankly, because we're still in the drought. Uh, and right now we're having a lot of cold weather. We have, like everywhere else in the country, we have limited hay stocks. So we got a lot of guys that are still trying to figure out how they're going to get through the winter, let alone what spring conditions are going to look like. Do you think it's a temporary reduction um, that, that maybe some of these cattle did go somewhere else and will come back? Or is this a sign of, yes, there has been liquidation of herds? Well, we've clearly liquidated the herd. In fact, if you look again at the USDA numbers nationwide, we lost over a million head of cows last year, which is the biggest in terms of absolute numbers, the biggest year over year decrease in the beef cow herd since like 1986. So, you know, and and one of the things about this drought this time has been that it's been much more widespread across the country. So, um, you know, we had a drought 10 years ago that was very severe in Texas and Oklahoma, but outside of that region, not so much. And there were a lot of cattle, in addition to the ones that were net liquidated, there were a lot of cattle that were relocated to new homes during that time period. This time, I don't think we've had as much relocation because there just weren't a lot of places that had a lot better conditions, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so there's been, you know, cow slaughter was enormous last year. Uh, in fact, the last two years, uh, as was heifer slaughter. And so uh, the, the level of female liquidation across the country, um, and, and in particular in these, in these drought regions, has been very, very significant and will impact us for, you know, several years uh, as we go forward. Well, you just gave me the facts. Give me the impact then. <laughs> well, the impacts are, you know, uh, sort of twofold. One is 
2022 was all-time record beef production in the U.S. And and when you look at the cyclical nature of cattle inventories, you know, cow herd and the all cattle inventory peaked in 2019. We've been getting smaller. How did we have beef production that many years later? Well, the reason we had peak uh, all-time record beef production in 2022 is because we were eating those that inventory. Uh, that's a temporary thing that you can, can do or have to do when you're in the middle of drought forced liquidation. Uh, but it's not sustainable, obviously. You, that's not a that's not an ongoing proposition. Um, and the other, so that's the, you know, that's sort of where we are now. Going forward, we have a lot less cattle. And, and uh, so beef production is going to fall. That's going to impact uh, consumers uh, in ways that they have not seen thus far in this thing. And then, of course, at some point in time, we trust that the uh, drought conditions will improve. <laughs> we don't know when that's going to be. It hasn't happened yet. But uh, when they do, then we're going to try to rebuild. And that's when we're going to really squeeze beef production because we're going to need to not eat all those heifers and cows. We're going to save them to rebuild the, the herd. And that uh, that is the kind of thing that really puts a spike in cattle prices for some period of time. We don't know when that's going to happen, but it will happen at some point. Because it's going to be extremely tempting for a producer to see the price. And when the, the yard calls and says, hey, we're going to offer this for a price to not load up a, a load and send them to market. But for the good and health of the organization or, or for the industry long term, you got to keep some of those animals back. Right. That's a, right. Am I is that too oversimplifying it? No, well, no, I think that is exactly, you know, the 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 dilemma, if you will. And it's the nature of the cattle industry that makes it kind of unique, even compared to other livestock markets, is that, you know, it's a one-for-one -one proposition. Um, in order to invest in future production, you got to not eat that heifer now. You got to not send her to the feedlot and feed her out. And, uh, you know, it's not like the, the swine industry where you can save one gilt and a year later you get 20 pigs. In, in the case of the beef industry, you save one heifer, and two years later, you get one calf. So it's a much slower process to, uh, and it kind of exaggerates those times when we have too much or not enough. Is that you, you know, you you you're either eating your way out of excess inventory or you're making a tight supply even tighter. And so, yeah, that's what's ahead for us here. At some point, is that we're gonna we're gonna make this thing a lot tighter. Uh, and the market prices are going to are going to reflect that in in terms of providing the incentives that producers will need to to want to save those heifers and invest in that future production. But it gets down to dollars and cents in in one way, Daryl, is that when you have a six in front of that corn market, uh, that price that makes it pretty expensive to feed. And then you're going to have a consumer who's going to look at the price up on the board of their, their butcher or their meat producer and go, that's not a number I'm going to afford or buy. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this thing plays out. Cattle prices, uh, you know, from a consumer demand standpoint, beef demand has stayed remarkably strong through this whole pandemic thing, all the disruptions that we've had, and through the fact that we've had large supplies of beef. So prices have stayed high, which says that beef demand has been strong. But now we're talking about when there's less beef, we're going to tighten supply, then those prices are going to be, uh, at least there's going to be pressure to push them higher. And the question is, how much can they go higher? And maybe the question is going to be, how will consumers, some consumers probably will get priced out of the market. There won't be as much beef and markets ration things to make sure we don't run out. 
So we're going to find out who wants it the most and, and uh, we'll price it uh, accordingly. Um, but that's but that's a very difficult issue right now, given the consumers are facing so much inflationary pressures uh, on on everything. Um, so that's one end of it. That's going to be kind of the cap on the upper end. The bottom end is we've got this really tight supply scenario uh, developing here. So what it means is the guys in the middle, you mentioned the, the price of corn, uh, all of the margin operations above the cow-calf level are going to be really squeezed in this process because the the you know the the top side of the market will adjust at least somewhat, but it won't adjust fast as fast as the bottom side is coming up. And so uh, I think cattle feeding is going to be a dilemma uh, going forward here because we're going to have not as many feeder cattle. They're going to be really expensive. And then we've still got a high cost of, uh, of gain in terms of high feed prices. And so those margins are going to be a challenge going forward. And the problem is the middle is where a lot of beginning producers kind of enter the game. Um, and that's always the producer you worry about uh, on a on a, a possible contraction or dramatic price swings. They're the ones who can't quite weather it. Their pencil isn't as long as someone else. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, it's a you know it's a question of who's going to make these adjustments. Um, that's a question in terms of the the type of producer. Uh, there's some regional implications when you think about uh, you know uh, you think about high cost of production and how high do these prices have to go again to provide the incentive to rebuild. That's got to come out of the cow calf sector. That's the factory, of course, that that the, all the supply comes from. Um, but when you think about where cattle are produced, they're produced all over the country. Cows are because we eat wherever there's forage, right? But in the eastern half of the country, that tends to be where we have, uh, you know, these introduced grasses that require fertilizer and lots of inputs relative to the west where we have rangelands that don't require near as many inputs. So we may see some regional differences in how the industry responds going forward and, and sort of who can respond or who can respond at least the quickest in all of this process. I've never thought of this until right now, but you're, you're speaking, you make it sound like I'm watching an election night coverage um, when, when we talk about bellwether counties. You know, there's election prognosticators that say, well, in Tama County, this has happened, which means the election's going to go this way. Are there bellwether counties for you that you look at when you study all the things you've just been talking about to give you an indication of what may transpire uh, in the market on any level? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, part of it is just sort of where cattle production tends to take place. And so if you think about where the cows are, they are produced all over the country. And there's some very important cattle production in lots of regions. But obviously, the bulk of the cows are in the middle of the country, right? So from Texas to North Dakota, uh, you got about 40% of the beef cow herd. And so you're going to watch those uh, those counties just because they're so, those those states, I should say, just because they're so big and, and what's happening. And of course, that's where the drought's laying the worst right now uh, across Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and parts of Texas. Um, and so what happens there is really going to dictate what happens in the rest of the country from the standpoint of that fundamental supply uh, from a cow-calf standpoint. Uh, then, you you know, once you take it up to the feedlot level, you obviously we got to watch, uh, you know, uh, the feed side of the market as well as the cattle side, the feeder cattle side of the market. And so, you know, that that shifts it a little bit. One of the things that came out of this uh, latest cattle inventory number, um, you know, for many years, most of the time, Texas has been the largest cattle feeding state in terms of numbers on January 1, although 
Um, you know, uh, about 10, 15 years ago, when the sort of ethanol thing took off, there was a period of time where Nebraska was was a little bigger than Texas again. Uh, and then it's kind of shifted back to Texas. But I noticed in these numbers that Nebraska and Texas were actually tied on January 1 uh, for all cattle. So there are those regional impacts in terms of, of, uh, of where cattle are going to be produced and, and where the resources are and maybe how those resources are going to get used in the future. And I think of uh, the conversation I had with a producer in Kansas yesterday who talked to a friend who's in western Kansas who just said, we have planted, they have planted, my friend, uh, wheat on wheat that's not grown. I have two years of, uh, two crops of seeds sitting in dry dirt. So there's no hope for them on a winter crop for this year coming. And when you talk about spread over an entire region, when you hear stories of, well, we can't even grow anything that will be used in three months from now. Does that give you pause for concern? Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, uh, when you look at it, uh, especially seasonally, again, the, the the southern plains and the wheat pasture grazing thing that's kind of unique to this region normally, uh, our numbers in Oklahoma, were, I mentioned earlier, were way down. Uh, and, and if you do the estimated feeder supply calculation, which would capture those cattle that are out on pasture someplace or whatever, uh, our feeder supply estimated for the state of Oklahoma was down 18 and a half percent, I think. We don't have, we didn't have much of a wheat pasture grazing. We've got a few cattle in the southern part of the state. There's a little bit of wheat pasture, but way less than normal uh, in the northern half of the state. And that's going to go up into Kansas as well in the region where they would typically graze. And so, uh, yeah, so that, again, that has an impact not only on those states, but it also impacts the rest of the country because we provide a home for those cattle. We, you know, we, as we measure it, uh, we know that cattle flow in here from other states and, uh, and those states, some of them have have learned over the years that that what what our conditions are is going to have an impact on their markets, and uh, that's certainly been true. Is there anybody that wins with this report uh, from from yesterday? Uh, and, and when I say win, um, is it a consumer? Is it a feeder? Is it a cow calf? Who who has the best outlook in twenty three? You know, in terms of prices, uh, it's pretty clear that the cow-calf sector is going to be in the driver's seat because we're, you know, this report confirms that we're, you know, we're smaller than we need to be as an industry. There's a market that's bigger than what we can actually service right now, and we're not sure that we're done liquidating yet, so it may get even more dramatic. And, and so that means that the the market's focus is going to is going to go back to the cow-calf sector to encourage that increase in production that we that we need. Uh, and that comes from rebuilding the herd first so that you can increase beef production. Uh, so the cow-calf sector from a price standpoint, now if you're in the middle of a drought and you had to get rid of your cows, that doesn't help in the short run, right? So it, it kind of depends on which cow-calf producer you are uh, and where you are in the country. But but as a sector, the cow-calf sector is clearly going to be in the driver's seat from this, from that standpoint. As I mentioned earlier, the margin sectors are going to struggle. I think the feedlot sector is going to have some real challenges. Packers are going to have a lot of challenges. You know, we've talked a lot in the last few years about packers have had opportunities to make a lot of money, and that happens sometimes in that sector. They're going to give a bunch of it back in the next two years or three. Well, and they already have. We already saw a big reversal in in about six, eight months. Uh, yeah, from that's right. Huge and, margins know, to no margin. Year, their margins were down, and they're going to get a lot tighter even going forward. And then ultimately, this tight supply and all of that is going to go to the consumer level. So, you know, consumers are not going to get any relief. Again, there may be limits on how high we can push those retail prices, 
because of the challenges for consumers, but they're we're clearly going to push them as hard as we can. And and I think the end result is that they will, in fact, go a somewhat higher uh, with with the implications that has for, again, for different consumers and uh, who wants it the most, who can afford it, and and what kinds of adjustments will they make on the types of products maybe that they're that they're able or willing to buy in that environment. Well, and let's let's be honest. Uh, the consumer is in a kind of a pinch spot when you keep hearing about HPAI influencing uh, the poultry market, and all of a sudden chicken hasn't dropped to a price, and that has gone expensive. So we went over to the beef market because hamburger was cheap, and then oh wait, now pork is. There's there's a couple of factors in major sources of protein for the American consumer that are kind of heading into that vice grip of sorts. Do you see any relief in any livestock industry that that might benefit more? From a consumer standpoint, you know, again, we're looking, in fact, if you look at the projections for 2023 for, you know, beef production dropping, pork production may be more stable, but it has been dropping somewhat. Poultry uh, also, you know, relatively stable. Some impact uh, on the meat side, but actually the biggest impact in poultry from HPAI was on the eggs. And, and there's been a lot of talk about egg prices, and that's one of the protein sources that consumers can can turn to. So across the board, uh, you know, projections for this year for total meat production in the U.S. are for the first decrease that we will have seen in about seven or eight years. Uh, so we've generally seen increasing meat supplies um, now, of course, we have to adjust that for trade in all of those sectors, uh, the net flows of products in and out of the country. But the bottom line is we're going to see less meat total in the country. So I think, you know, I think your point is well taken that uh, there's not necessarily going to be any any obvious uh, alternative out there across the protein sectors. I think it's going to be a challenge and a, and a bit of an issue for consumers. When it shows up on the front page of the mainstream press, that's uh, when we, and we because the eggs has been has been in there, and then there's the report of, well, there really wasn't a supply demand issue. That was just a profit taking opportunity by those companies. I won't I won't make you answer that question, uh, but I will make you answer. <laughs> but I am going to make you answer uh, this as we we wind down just a little bit. Um, as you look at livestock and and the consumer, um, it's been. Uh, is there a stomach for the non-farm related person to see expansion of livestock? Because you hear about people in ag states that don't want more uh, confinement operations, or they don't want another feedlot, or they don't want another beef processing facility. All these discussions have really re-energized in the last couple of years. Is there a stomach for the the consumer to understand this more and and maybe realize okay yeah I do need we do need more of X or Y. Well, I you know and I think that kind of gets to the point we've as a country I think we've we've enjoyed abundant relatively cheap food compared to most of the world for for a long long time. And and it's 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 certainly easy in in that environment to sort of take it for granted. And, and so then you start these kinds of conversations about the things that maybe we don't like or whatever w- without necessarily understanding the implications. So I guess I say all that to say that if we get into a situation where maybe food is either not as abundant or not as cheap, then, uh, you know, then the reality comes home that, hey, we, you know, there are some things that have to get done in order for us to have those, those advantages. And, and so, uh, um, you know, I, I, 
I, there may be more of those conversations in the future. I think we're still in a good position to continue producing abundant, relatively cheap food for the American consumer. Um, but it's certainly, and you know, the 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 pandemic really demonstrated what happens when you seriously disrupt these supply chains and things. Uh, all of a sudden, whoa, uh, you know, maybe uh, at least temporarily things weren't as available or the the range of products wasn't as available for a brief period of time. And, and that just highlights the fact that we can have problems where it becomes a much more fundamental question of of, uh, of eating rather than maybe some of these uh, uh, other questions that are, you know, a little bit uh a little bit more philosophical in nature, if you will, or or you know whatever, uh, not related to the the underlying issue of just making sure that we have uh, lots of food for for everybody that needs it. Uh, politically, um, we're getting ready to work maybe <laughs> on a new farm bill. We're not, we think that's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, depends on what political source you read. Uh, right. But but. On a policy sense, there's been beef state senators. I can think of Nebraska and Iowa, Kansas, have all been involved with the politics side before the farm bill about the packer margin really what prompted a lot of that and the fair market price and the 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 the, the understanding spot price and, and things like that. Do you think there's still going to be a stomach for that uh, to move politically forward on any of those? I mean, especially if the packer isn't going to be making money like they were. Well, yeah, I, you know, I think there's a couple of things. One is high cattle prices takes care of a lot of those discussions. And, and so we've seen this come and go. These issues are not new. We've been talking about them for as long as I've been in this business at various times. They come and go. And so I, I think there'll be less of that just because we're going to be in an environment here for the next two to four years, at least, of relatively high cattle prices. And that takes care of some of that. But it won't go away either because, again, we've been here before and, and it never completely goes away. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I would just say that whatever we decide to do from a policy standpoint, by the way, I can't predict politics. I can't figure out cattle markets, let alone politics. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> so I don't I wouldn't attempt to predict what's going to happen. But but I guess, you know, here's where it comes down to for me. I I have argued for many years and, and I really believe it's true that the the U.S. cattle and beef industry as it operates today is probably the most complex set of markets on the planet. When you take all of the dimensions of complexity in this industry, I don't think there's another industry anywhere that can match it. And what that does to me then is it really highlights the fact that we need to let markets work. There's just too many pieces and moving parts and too much uh, too much dynamics in this thing. If we start interfering, any gonna, any kind of government solution to a problem is going to inject into a market and disrupt the way markets work. And I really think we better be very careful about how we do that if we're going to do that. And that's just, that's my advice, I guess, to the industry in general is uh, be careful uh, if you, if you, if you think that's where the solution lies, because I think it's more complicated than maybe uh, those simple, easy to understand solutions would, would, uh, would let you think about. I, I, I'm not going to put a word in your mouth, but are you saying status quo? I'm I'm saying the market does a remarkable job, you know. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the fact that uh, any consumer in the country can go into a grocery store any day of the year and find fresh meat, fresh beef that's probably not more than two or three weeks from having been harvested, and yet the process that led to that fresh meat being available for that consumer started two and a half years ago by some guy 
a thousand miles away in many cases or more deciding to turn the bull out. Now, when you think about all the things that happen <laughs> from the time you turn the bull out until you've got fresh meat available, 365 days a year for consumers, I think you have to be really impressed that markets do a remarkably good job yeah. of making sure that we don't ever really have issues of walking into the store and there's nothing there available for us today. And so mm -hmm. I, I think uh, markets do an awfully good job of solving a lot of issues along the way. Never a dull moment and no shortage of things to talk about, Daryl. Boy, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, I appreciate the time. Thank you so very much for the conversation. Yeah, you bet. I've enjoyed it very much. Anytime I can help. My thanks to Daryl Peel for his time and insight. New episodes of this podcast come out each and every Tuesday. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or you can watch the YouTube version on our YouTube channel. Subscribe and follow today and always be in the know. We'll see you next time.